Chestnut roasting. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. So I'm offering everybody, it's me, Katie Osaurus, and welcome to our very merry special holiday episode of Infinite Quest. This is it. This is the one that we've been teaser trailering for a really long time now. This is the Christmas Carol turkey episode of Infinite Quest. Is this episode necessary? Absolutely not. Are you going to learn more about the size of the turkey and Christmas Carol in the next 40 minutes than you ever thought was humanly possible? The answer to that, my friends, is yes. However, before we get started, I've just got a few housekeeping announcements. Week after week, we continue to be just absolutely floored by your support, your generosity, and your belief in this project. One of the quickest, easiest, and freest ways of supporting Infinite Quest is simply to leave us a review on your podcast venue of choice. We're also very happy to say that as of this week, we are now available on iHeartRadio. We're still working on Amazon, but we're hoping to get there soon. Additionally, if you're looking for a last-minute holiday gift or two, we have some amazing new Infinite Quest merchandise in our Redbubble shop. We've been working with a couple of artists who have done some incredible concept art of Blumkin and Helvetica, and we are so, so excited. So go ahead and check that out if you get a chance. Lastly, before we begin, I kind of want to tell you the story of how this episode came about. One of the reasons why I really wanted to include it as an Infinite Quest episode is because this is a prime and peak example of what happens when my particular brand of hyperfocus kicks in. Because last year, I got super, super interested in trying to figure out how big the prize turkey in a Christmas Carol would have been. And when I tell you that I spent over 72 hours researching this, I'm not kidding. This consumed my life. And at the end of it all, I found the answer. And not only did I actually figure out the answer, which is something that I will always be proud of, recently I learned this. Hey Google, how big was the turkey in a Christmas Carol? According to Katie Osborne, it's twice the size of Tiny Tim. Then, when the boy shows up with the turkey... My research and my writing on this is the only hit that comes up on Google. I might be the only person in the history of time to care enough to research this question. And so I sat Eric down and I forced him to listen to my famous Christmas Carol turkey rant. And so now, without further ado, here it is. Please enjoy this very special turkey-themed episode of Infinite Quest. Hey, Katie. Hey, Eric. What's your rant about the turkey and the Christmas story? Do you want to do this? I want to do this right now, Katie. You want to do it right now? I want to do it right now. I got a sandwich. I haven't had any wine. Oh, do you want some wine? It's like 11 o'clock in the morning, That's not Eric. the question I asked, Katie. I do want some wine, Eric. Okay, you don't have to... Yeah, we can wait. Should we record? Record what? The podcast. The podcast about what? About... About the turkey rant. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you're recording! I'm recording right now, Katie. <laughs> I didn't know you were recording. <laughs> oh, no, I'm embarrassed to ask for wine at 11 in the morning, and everyone's going to hear that part, Eric. It's noon. Why are you looking at me with your self-assured... It's 12.31, you time-blind person that I love very much. Well, you know what? All right. Well, let me get my notes, Eric. I have to get my notes for this this rant. 
<laughs> Are we really doing this right now? Yeah, dude. Alright. I'm, like, nervous now. It's gonna be great. You're gonna be great. We haven't been building up to this for a very long time. It's, we haven't. You know. Uh, okay. okay, so, Katie. Yeah? What is your rant about the Christmas story and this turkey? Okay, so first off, we're talking about the Christmas carol turkey, not the Christmas story turkey. It's right. very different. There's a lamp and dogs. And, and, and like there's a, a duck. And then there's like a pole and he sticks his tongue. Right now, different story. <clears throat> but, okay, before I start all of this, I, I want to preface this by saying that I I love Christmas carol. I I absolutely love Christmas Carol. I love it because it's good. It's a good story. It culturally changed the way that we celebrate Christmas. Like Charles Dickens just like did that just with this book. And what, like did he do was was he the first guy to do stockings? He was not the first guy was to he, do was stockings. Was he the tree guy? <laughs> oh yeah, I bet he was the 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 mistletoe guy. He was like, "Oh, <laughs> I'm going to guess you now cuz there's a mistletoe." That's that's yes. That's actually exactly what Charles Dickens yeah, sounded like. It was great very Charles Dickens person. Um, but but no. But I've always loved Christmas Carol, and I always thought Christmas Carol was like this this symbol of like man's capacity for good and man's capacity for change and kindness and compassion. And I like to the point where like I literally carry around a copy of Christmas Carol with me wherever I go. Like I always have. Like that's my weird thing. Not a lot of people know that about me. Now I'm publicly confessing this. So like I love Christmas Carol. I lo- I love it. I love it. There is a problem with Christmas Carol, Eric. Oh really? Does it is it turkey related? Is it turkey related? <laughs> it's a turkey related problem. Eric. Okay. The problem. The the thing that I have always thought about Christmas Carol was that it was bullshit. That that Scrooge wakes up having having been redeemed and and is like uh, the the only course of action I have to fix my my prior bad behavior is to is to show up at the Cratchit's house with a turkey. That is a deeply inconvenient Christmas gift, Eric. Have you ever cooked a turkey? Is it a live turkey? No, I mean, mean, it's a dead turkey. It's a raw, but it's raw. But he gives them a raw-ass turkey as, like, his, like, I'm sorry for being a dick and underpaying you for money. Like, it's, like, it was a whole thing, right? And so I've always thought this. And and you go and you see, like, you go and... Because I'm an actor, right? And so there's a line in a show that I love. It's called The Twelve Dates of Christmas. And the line is, um, if you're an actor who can say the words, God bless us, everyone, there is work for you in December. (laughs) Because every actor, it's like SVU, every actor does Christmas carols all the time. And so... um, so yeah, so so you just see this all the time, like Scrooge like showing up and like oh it's a turkey and like thank you, Mister Scrooge, and then, but I was like that's so rude, it's so rude to do that, like that's a shitty Christmas. It'd be like going up and being like here's some caviar. It's not even it's not even, not even caviar. It's, it's I'm taking off my clothes, Eric. That's how excited I'm getting. Okay, so like so this this was this was the the key. This was like this was the thing where I was like that's bullshit. But then I got to thinking about it. And I was like, because I read Christmas Carol a lot. I read Christmas Carol a lot. I was wondering what you were doing in the bathroom all this morning. Um, I was reading Christmas Carol. Thank you, Eric. Okay. Now is the part where I'm going to actually start referring to my notes. Okay. Because it's important. <clears throat> okay. So, 
Christmas Carol was written by Charles Dickens in 1843. And for those of you who are not familiar with the plot of Christmas Carol, it's about Scrooge and he's mean and he has a bit like a bad dream and then he's not mean anymore. And that's pretty much the right, plot of Christmas right, Carol. Right, 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 right. Um, but obviously I've been referring to this turkey, so whatever. Um, so in, in Christmas Carol, Scrooge buys the Cratchit family the prize turkey. Um, and this is what I want to talk about. For the next hour. Okay. Are you in? I'm, Are you I'm, in for this? I'm in, Katie. I'm in. I can't tell by your reaction. We might have to do this in, a, in like a two-phase kind of deal, because I have ADHD, but I'm in. Let's do okay. this. So in the text of Christmas Carol, the prize turkey is described as such. Here we go. Quote from the book. Uh, it says, do you know whether they've sold the prize? I don't know why I'm reading it as Rich Victorian Widow. <laughs> do you know whether they've <laughs> sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? She was um, there. And then he says, not the little prize turkey, the big one. And then Scrooge is saying this to like a child on the screen. And, and Wait, street. sorry, what does he say again? He says, Scrooge, at, so Scrooge wakes up in the morning, he opens the windows, and he's like, what day is it? And the kids are like, it's Christmas Day, sir. Right, like we all, like culturally, we know this scene. So Scrooge says to the kid, he says, do you know whether they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey, the big one. What? The one as big as me, returned the boy. Um, that's the line. Kid says, watch, the one as big as me, sir. Right? So this is a small, this is like a... This is a little street urchin. Like a five-year-old child sized turkey. Well, well, well we're going to get to that. Okay. 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 Uh, so then only uh, like a couple paragraphs later, Scrooge says, um, he shan't know who sends it, it being the turkey. It's twice the size of Tiny Tim. And then, when the boy shows back up with the turkey, uh, Charles Dickens comments on the size of the turkey, and he says, It was a turkey. He could, he never could have stood upon his legs, that bird. He would have snapped them off short and off in a minute, like sticks of sealing wax. Okay. Okay. So, like, big our, turkey. it's a big turkey. It's a really big turkey. So, the bird is, like, physically so large that it hypothetically couldn't stand. And then I looked it up and I got bored already because I have ADHD. So, I decided to find out how. Uh, how much pressure per square inch it takes to break a bone. <laughs> Eric, this is page one of 38. Uh, of like a I, turkey's leg. A bone uh, of a turkey's yeah, leg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it takes about 25 to 30 pounds per square inch to break a smaller bone. So, like, we're sizing the bird up considerably here if we take this to be true. And I want to be very clear, like, across the board, I realize there's, like, ghosts and shit in this book. I'm taking it as fact, because okay. otherwise it, it's that's just going into right, So, it's pounds per square inch, so a turkey's is a turkey's leg... One one inch thick yeah. at least. About. Let's just assume. Okay. Well, yeah, we're okay. gonna we're gonna say. So okay, so we take these given circumstances. We've got a turkey. Maybe its its legs are about the the circumference of a, of sealing wax, which is about an inch, uh-huh. twenty five pounds per square inch. That's fine. But then the kid says the one as big as me, and that's where I got interested. So in Child Workers and Industrial Health in Britain, 1780 to 1850, we learn several useful facts about the literal size and scope of children in London at the time of, of writing, when Charles Dickens was writing this in, in, in 1843. So <clears throat> in 1835... The uh-huh. Edinburgh Medical and Surgical Journal, um, which I read cover to cover. I just want to be very clear, Eric. We're going down a rabbit hole here, and when, when, you can never unhear any of this. Okay, all right. Okay, so in 1835, a bunch of scientists in Edinburgh did a study on the size of uh, male factory workers. Uh-huh. Including the children. But it's, but it's 1843... And so, is it 1848? I feel like it was 1843. I feel like you keep saying that. And now, yeah, it's 1843. Um, okay. 
but it was 1843. So most factory workers were about 11 years old. So I just went ahead and decided that the kid that Scrooge is talking to is like somewhere around like 10 or 11 years old. Cause he can send the kid on an air and the kid's like smart enough to like figure that out. Like, uh-huh. so we're going to say he's like 11 years old. Right. Um, so the average 11 year old factory worker was about 50 inches tall. Um, and then like, and as short as like 46 inches. Right. Um, but it's noted later that mining children were shorter than, uh, like, like farm kids. Right. So you've got a range of sizes of your street urchins, Mm -hmm. but this becomes important in the story later on. Um, and so then also even earlier than that in 1818, this guy named Kenyon did research. Um, and he figured out that like there wasn't a lot of differentials between kids who were like working in the country, um, or the city, but there was like a big difference between kids working in the city and kids working in the country. Like country kids were just bigger and stronger and, and ate more basically. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, so, okay. So. That's that, right? Okay. okay. Context. Kids, context. City kids, kind of small. Kind of small. Working factory. It's very sad. Country kids work on farms. A mm-hmm. little more robust. Right. Okay. And factory kids, generally a little taller than mine yes, kids. About, about well. 50 inches, we're going to say. 48 to 50 inches This was the factory worker. Yeah, 40, 48 to 50 kids. inches. Yeah. Tall. Okay. Okay. So, but we also know that, that Scrooge wakes up on Christmas Day and... And, and Christmas has always been a, a holiday in the UK, um, starting in 1834. So by 1843, when Christmas Carol was written, it was already a holiday. Everybody would have had the day off of work, right? So it's possible that maybe the kid didn't have a job. Maybe he did. We don't know. But we're going to assume for the sake of it that he's walking around London by himself on Christmas he probably is some sort of factory worker. Uh-huh. Is this okay? Yes, got right. it. Scans, got for it. Sure. Got Definitely. it. Um, but here's the thing. Um, uh, uh, so estimates show that over fifty percent of the workers in British factories were under the age of fourteen. So like we're already like sizing him down a little bit. Uh-huh. But the kid is also. Did you hear that? Oh, it's somebody's car. Are we good? <laughs> okay. So okay. So Charles Dickens also describes the kid as being in Sunday clothes, which is different, right? Because, like, so now, we, like, now we're looking at economic tax bracket stuff, right? Right. Because you've got a kid, we're going to say between the ages of 11 and 14, but he's described in Sunday clothes, so we can place him in a reasonably, like, middle-class economic bracket. Yeah, because why he wouldn't have a separate set of Sunday clothes... Precisely. You're following the logic train, Eric. I'm yes. very proud of you. Thank you very much. Okay. But then why also would he be a factory worker at the age of 11 if he's from a family that can afford Sunday it's, clothes? You see, we don't we don't know. So what I did is I took the median of the two sizes. So oh, I right, because we're just trying to just figure out what, how tall this kid is. Yeah, but how feasibly averagely tall, right? Okay. So what okay. I decided is I took the, the smallest and the biggest, the, the smallest little mining sad uh-huh. urchin, and then the robust country kids, and I, and I, and I medianed those, and so we're going to say that he would have historically stood about 48.62 inches tall. I'm going with that. Let's do that. So I'm down. The CDC uh-huh. uh, in 2018 said that a standard height uh, for like a five-year-old boy or girl is around 39 to 48 inches and a normal weight is between 34 and 50 pounds. So, but this kid is supposed to be like 11. So like if we look at like those historical numbers, like already we're, we're realizing that like these children were like much smaller than the children that like we're used to seeing in right. our lives. And those, those are, those are average. That's not saying like, that's like normal. Those are just averages. It's just like, averages. Right. You just but take like, all of them. This is very small 11 year old because you know, right. this is, they didn't have they didn't, vaccines yeah, they didn't and, know vitamin, about, and Flintstones vitamins. They didn't vitamins. know what like protein was. 
Right. So the CDC tells us that the average height for an 11 year old male today is about 54 inches and a weight about like 70 inches. Okay. And so, and and so then that gives us a BMI of about like 16.5. And I want to be very clear. I know that BMI is like a trash garbage science, but I used it to find the following calculation. So if we, if we figure out that like our street urchin is about 48 inches high and assuming that he's like living in London and he's probably working at some point is, uh, you know, we're going to put him in like median economics, right? Um, so we're going to say that he's a little less well-fed than a modern middle-class American child. Um, so we're going to place him in the slightly underweight category, which gets us to about like 43 to 45 pounds. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at, a, at you know, the, the one as big as me, sir, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, which also just kind of side note, but because we're this far into this record, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, it does allow us to estimate the age and size of Tiny Tim, uh, because if, if the turkey is in fact twice, twice as large, twice as, large yeah. as this kid, but twice the size of Tiny Tim, uh, you get a Tiny Tim that's about two feet tall and about 20 pounds, which is very tiny. It's tiny. Aptly named Tiny Tim. Moving on. Including the weight of the cane? Okay. So we'll say that Scrooge is overcome by the spirit of Christmas. And he exaggerated slightly in his newfound excitement. He's a ghost of Christmas. And the kid is bad at sight estimating turkey weight. We're going to say that it's not possible to look at a turkey and be like 38.62 pounds, right? So, okay. So we'll round it down to 40. We're just going to say 40 pounds for this. This turkey turkey weighs 40 pounds. Yes. That is what I'm guessing. This is what I'm guessing at my What's the average weight of like just... A turkey. Well, it's funny you ask that, uh, because uh, Alton, uh, yes, Daddy Brown, says that uh, a turkey cooks at about like fifteen to twenty minutes per pound. Um, so conservatively, you're looking at about like forty pounds times fifteen minutes for a total of six hundred minutes or ten hours even for this specific forty pound turkey. Um, oh, this is where my expertise comes in. Yes. Isn't it? So okay, so. I got interested in what would be the size of a regular turkey in, cause we still don't know. We still don't know how big the prize turkey is. We're just trying to figure out this estimate because I want to know like how hard this, I wanted to know two things. One, how big was the turkey? And then how hard did Scrooge dick over the Cratchits by giving them this prize turkey? So like, I got really interested in figuring out like what was the average size of a turkey in London at the time? So there's this really cool cookbook. It's called Modern Cookery for Private Families, and it's by this woman named Eliza Acton, and it was published in 1845, so like a year or two after Christmas Carol. Um, But if you read it, you can tell that, like, technology pretty much, like, stayed the same. Like, there weren't, like, any huge, cool new Mm -hmm. things happening in, in the two years, right? So... Acton says that for heavy and substantial joints, a quarter of an hour is generally allowed for every pound of meat with a sound fire and frequent basting. um, And that'll be found sufficient. Um, And then, uh, and she says that a turkey should take about an hour and a half to two hours, which is like kind of commensurate with the usual sizes of turkey that like show up in this cookbook. Cause I read the whole cookbook and I pulled all the turkey recipes so you wind up with like a turkey estimate of between like seven to 10 pounds, right? Like that's like your standard turkey size in London in 1845 is about seven to 10 pounds. Um, you okay? Yeah. You doing good? You okay so far? 
the look of bafflement and confusion on your face. But there's an even better book. So Acton was really popular with housewives, but there was like another sect who were like the, the women who were like not necessarily running their own households, but like also running households of like slightly wealthier people. So like servants and, and governesses and nannies and that kind of thing. And it was this amazing book called Mrs. Beaton's book of household management. Um, and it was arguably like the most famous cookbook of the period. Like everybody bought this book. She was like Betty Crocker, right? Um, and you can actually still buy it. It's still in print oh, cool. today. You can buy it on Amazon. Quite cool. True story. Uh, but anyway, um, so in Mrs. Beaton, she says that you can cook a small turkey in about an hour, one and a half hours, a moderate sized one in about two hours, um, a large turkey about two and a half. So like, and she says that the average cost of a 10 pound turkey is about from like 10 to 12 shillings, but the price increases on Christmas according to the great demand. So like, between Acton and Mrs. Uh, what's her name? Mrs. Beaton, we get the average size of a turkey is about seven to ten pounds. Takes you about an hour, hour and a half to cook. Makes right. sense and so it far. Costs... Yeah. Um, How much does it cost? It costs about ten shillings. Ten shillings increased on Christmas. <clears throat> yes. By how much? Uh, it's maybe a few shillings. She doesn't specify. So just over, so like your 13 um, shillings. Yeah, but so so I'm really bad with British money, but just because you asked. Um, so my like. So there's big, it's so complicated. I know we're going to have British listeners who are like, ha that's not right. But so basically there's 20 shillings per pound and a pound in 1843. I looked up the inflation. Per pound unit of currency, not unit Yeah, of like British pound. Like a, okay. a British pound in 1843 is worth approximately $107 today, like based on inflation rates. So 10 shillings is right around half a pound, which puts the cost of a 10-pound turkey at about like $53, $54 in 2019, 2020 money. Does that make sense? Wow, that's expensive. So the cost of a 40-pound turkey, because it's still the estimate that I've come to, is about $180 for wow. it's like a $200 turkey. Um, and Scrooge also gives the kid a half crown tip, which is about $25, just in case you're wondering. I know uh, you were. Um, I was. Okay, so um, then I I got lost in my notes. Okay, so just so I just want to point out that if this kid does buy the turkey, okay, this... the kid doesn't act. Yes, so Scrooge like flips the. I like to think he like flips the coin out the window at him. He gives him a sovereign. And he sends the kid, but there's a very important note that doesn't actually happen in any of the movie productions. Uh -huh. Scrooge doesn't like Scrooge arranges for two guys and a carriage to transport the turkey to Camden Town, okay. where the Cratchits live. Scrooge does not, like, it's not like Muppet Christmas Carol, where he, like, shows up and, like, Rizzo's on his shoulder, and he's like, oh, I bought you this turkey! Oh, because... Scrooge goes over to Fred's house for Christmas. Scrooge never sees the Cratchits on Christmas, in, in the actual text of Christmas Carol. Gotcha, because I'm, I'm just, I had in my, for some reason I had in my head that this kid is going to go buy, but he was just asking the kid if it had been sold yet. Oh, yeah, so he so sends he the kid to the store to buy the turkey. Oh, to just So the kid give brings the, cash. the money. Yeah, so and the then kid's two walking guys, around with 200 bucks in his pocket. Basically, yeah. Uh, Christmas trust, right? The gift right. of Christmas trust. So, but then, so yeah, but then Scrooge sends two guys because he's like, oh, that turkey's going to be too heavy for that kid to carry all the way to Camden Town. Because, like, a 15 minute, because we can go so much farther into this. But yeah, so it's a whole thing. But Scrooge never shows up at the Cratchits on Christmas. They just get a mystery turkey. Two men show okay. up at their door with a turkey. So, all right. So, why do the Cratchits not want this turkey. Why is it a bad thing for Scrooge to do to give this turkey to the crowd? See, I don't think it's a bad thing. I've just always think, thought it's a very inconvenient gift. Well, how is that? Because 
turkeys take for fucking ever to cook. Yeah. Yes, they do. And so there's there's more, but I need to get to. I, there's so much more. Okay, to this area. all right. It's, there's so much more. Okay, 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 <laughs> okay. Let's go. Let's, you got this. That's okay. all right. Let's go. Okay. okay, okay. So I'm trying to figure out what to skip because I went down so many rabbit holes. So. I feel like it is at this juncture important to mention that the heaviest turkey ever recorded was 86 pounds. That's the biggest turkey. Guinness Book of World's Record turkey, 86 pounds. Could it stand on its legs? I don't know. I mean, one assumes. I don't know. But so, like, with all this being said, so if we take Dickens at his word and what he writes, Scrooge rolls up with a $200 40-something pound turkey that would take almost 10 hours to cook. Um, and, like... Just sidebar. It is said over and over and over and over again that Mrs. Cratchit has already bought a goose and has, like, sent the goose out to be cooked. And she's, like, preparing Christmas dinner. So, like, she's already got Christmas dinner figured out. Like, she's already been, like, working on Christmas dinner. Oh, my God. Like, it's, like, a whole thing, right? Um, And then... So yeah, so so that that's just the whole that's part of it. Is Mrs. Cratchit is so clearly like emotionally attached to this goose, and then Chris and then Scrooge is like, ha ha, surprise turkey. Uh, but my dear Katie, you say a forty pound turkey is ridiculous. That's exactly like, what I was like, just no. saying. Yeah, an excellent point, Eric. Which is why I wanted to know what would the size of a prize turkey have been in eighteen forty three? Um, and so Eric, I went to the British newspaper archive. I got on a plane, Eric. Wait, Katie, I'm sorry. You flew I went, I across went to an the, ocean to the British newspaper archive. To go look um, up what the size of a prize turkey would have been. And I looked up every specific mention of turkey in 1843 was, and there were a surprising number of you them. You couldn't get that online? But, Did you have to go? I mean, I could have gotten it online. It just happened that I just wanted to say that, but it just happened. I was in London one time. On Christmas Day, Eric, Christmas Day, uh-huh. 1843, the day... Like the, the very year, turkey, the, the turkey very, in question, the very the prize turkey in London, eighteen forty three, the year Christmas Carol was published. Bell's Weekly Messenger, a very popular newspaper at the time, published reviews of different butchers and poulterers in London, and of a Mister Donovan's in Oxford Street. They said. The shop was crammed almost to suffocation, and the samples were of a superior order. Here was a prize turkey, perhaps the largest in London. Its weight? 38 and a half pounds. Wow. So, my math worked, Eric. Congratulations, Katie. Holy shit. That's amazing. That's like... Oh, my God. So, yeah. So, all I had to do was just look up the average size of the male factory worker in 1843 and then, you know... Uh, divide that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, one, I'm impressed with your with your tenacity in in, tra- in figuring out the relative information so as to make that calculation. I'm also very impressed with Dickens's ability to artistically yet apparently accurately describe the size of a prize turkey. That's very it's very good. wow. He was so his storytelling is so good. You can calculate the size of the turkey. Can't to within two pounds based on his of analogies. Mrs. Beaton and Miss Acton, we can also uh, specifically pinpoint the amount of time that it would have taken to cook that turkey, right. and that's ten hours. Which so obviously <clears throat> those are all wood ovens, just like she said. Acton says, uh, "What is are they not?" Well, Eric, it's okay. funny you should ask. 
because once I figured out that I was right and the turkey was around 40 pounds, like 38 and a half, 40, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, close. Yeah. It's close enough to make really me feel close. vindicated. Yeah, that was great. great. But then I was like, would Mrs. Cratchit have had time to, cook, the, a, 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 the... to cook a, a 40-pound turkey, uh, knowing that Acton and Beaton both say that it cooked 10 hours? Um, and then that meant, Eric, that I had to create the timeline of A Christmas Carol. Congratulations, you made it to the middle of the episode. We're very proud of you, just so you know. Have you had any water today? Before we jump back into whatever is happening, uh, we just have a couple of announcements. First, we want to remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash infinitequest. And we know that at this time of year, a lot of folks are asking you for donations, but... Well, speaking vulnerably and honestly and all jokes aside, even in the middle of this kind of lighthearted episode, Eric lost his job today and it is two days before Christmas. And so all of a sudden, the financial stability that we had hoped for and we had anticipated in terms of being able to move Eric here to Atlanta and to start building the Infinite Quest dream into a reality is a little bit on thin ice. And frankly, it's really disheartening and it's really scary. This is something that we are so passionate about and we feel so blessed and so lucky to have found this community and found each other and discovered something that we are passionate about and we are excited to do every single day. I have never been particularly good at communicating what I want or I need because I've internalized it as some sort of like failing and failure because I have rejection sensitive dysphoria. Um, but in this specific case, I am going to swallow my pride and I am just going to let you know how you can help. Every week I get this cool little email from our podcast hosting service and it tells me how many people listen to our podcast and how many people subscribe to our podcast and all of that good stuff. And so I ran the numbers. And if every person who listens to this podcast subscribed to our Patreon at just the dollar level, we would have more than enough money to move Eric to Atlanta and really make this a viable part of our lives. Now, I know that not everybody is able to financially commit to that, and that is okay because I am in the same boat. I lost my job during the pandemic, and so I've started taking on piecemeal work when I can. And it's tough out there for a lot of people, especially during the holiday season. There are plenty of cost-free ways that you can support us, including leaving reviews or stars on your favorite podcast platform of choice, and also just telling your friends and your family about us, post about us, share our stuff online, let people know that we exist. But like I said, if you are able to support us on the Patreon, if you've got 12 bucks a year that you don't mind throwing our way to help continue our mission of education and advocacy, we would be absolutely eternally grateful. And you would really and truly be helping our dreams come true. And so with that in mind, I bring you back to the absolute nonsense that is the conclusion of the Great Christmas Carol Turkey episode of 2020. You cr okay? Because there's a very specific timeline of events that happen on Christmas, but I had to reconstruct the entire timeline 
from scratch. So, like, not just the timeline in the book, but the timeline of, like, what the the universe, the, the, the Dickensian universe. universe. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I did. Would you like to hear about the timeline of the Christmas day of Christmas Carol, I really loved you so much, Katie. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. Oh, God. Okay, there's a, there's, so I'm just going to preface this by saying there's a lot of quotes that I'm going to have to read for you from the book, so if the, anything's unclear, just let me know. Okay, okay, okay. 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 The timeline of Christmas Day, to the best of my ability to figure out, is as follows. So State 4 closes with Scrooge learning, like, his valuable lesson, and then he wakes up excited about his, you know... What for? Stage 4? Stave 4. Stave. So Christmas so, so Christmas Carol is kind of divided into acts, uh-huh. um, but it's called, they're called staves instead okay. of acts because it's not a play. It's... Oh, book. interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, Stave 1 is, like, all about, like, Marley's ghost, and then Stave 2 is, like, Christmas... Present, I don't remember, but like, right. So, so save four, right? Okay. Opens with or closes with Scrooge like going to bed, right? Um. So then, uh, what we, but we don't know what time he falls asleep, right? Because like he's in Ghost of Christmas Future Land or whatever. But and this like, is the day before Christmas. Yes. Yeah. So Christmas Eve. So so Scrooge goes home on Christmas Eve. He eats his like sad pot of gruel. Marley's ghost visits him mm. and then weirdly there's like this plot hole where Marley tells Scrooge that for the next three days he's going to be visited by a ghost every every night right mm-hmm. but then what basically happens is that the ghosts do it all in one night on Christmas Eve and so Scrooge wakes up on Christmas Day um, but we don't know specifically what time Scrooge would have woken up however what we do know is the following so Dickens writes, he was checked in his transports by the churches, ringing out the lustiest pearls he had ever heard. Clash, clang, hammer, ding, dong, bell. But like, and it just keeps going like bell, dong, ding. We get it. Charles Dickens, the bells ring. <laughs> um, and he says, oh, glorious, glorious. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist, clear, bright, jovial, stirring, cold, cold, piping for the blood to dance to golden sunlight, heavenly sky, sweet, fresh air, merry bells. Oh, glorious, glorious. Right. So from that paragraph, we can surmise the following things. One, there are church bells ringing. Two, that it's daylight out. Three, and it's late enough in the morning that the dew point has adjusted and that there's no fog. Okay, so it's on the hour because the church bells are ringing. Presumably they rang on the hour like they do now? Well, fun fact. I love that you're here. I love that you're here with me right now. (laughs) Okay, so Christmas Day 1843 fell on a Monday. Very important. And according to the British Almanac of 1844, because 1843 wasn't uh, available on Google, but it's fine. It's close enough, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Sunrise would have happened at about 7.03 a.m., but this was before daylight savings and standard time wasn't established until 1895. So not sure how accurate this this is, but uh, Christmas, like sunrise in London, when I researched this last year, was 8.05 a.m., so I imagine it's close, right? Mm-hmm. So we'll say sunrise at about, like, 7 a.m., but what about the bells? So then I had to research church bells in England, because I got interested. So there's this really great book that was written in 1912, and it's called Church Bells of England, and it's by this guy named H.B. Walters, who exhaustively details the history and uses of church bells around England. And he said that besides the regular Sunday ringing, it is customary to recognize the great festivals of the church, especially Christmas and Easter, by special peals, either before the services or, important our purposes, 
early in the morning or on the eve of the festival. Oh, so what, what's appeal? The, like, like just bells the ringing. Bells ringing. That's it's a, just a that's peel. A peel. Yeah. Okay. Like a gotcha. like it's just a sound, right? A unit of bells ringing. <laughs> it's just like a yeah, peel is just like the the a verb for like the sound of bells. Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. Um, but. At Christmas, specifically, he writes specifically about Christmas, and he says that Christmas ringing usually takes place on the eve, and in many places, appeal is also rung early on Christmas morning before the services begin. So, uh, then he sets down some specific times that they would have run. So he goes, the ringing of one or more bells at an early hour on Sunday morning still obtains a large, uh, still happens a lot, basically, I'm going to sum some of this up. Um, but there are great divergencies of practice. In some churches, the bell is rung at 7, in others at 8, it, in others at 7.39 or 10. So, with all of that in mind, bells, sunlight, sunrise, and day of the week, we can sort of come up with the idea that Scrooge wakes up from his dream somewhere between 7 and 8 a.m. on Christmas morning, December 1843. Okay. Got it. Cool. And all of this is in service of assembling a timeline such that you can figure out what Miss Aikens... Cratchit. Miss Cratchit was... Would, would she have had time to cook this turkey? Yes. Given the timeline. So this is where we're using this as our, like, our North Star. Like, okay, so Scrooge wakes up. So scene begins somewhere between 7 yeah. and 8. Yeah. So, Scrooge wakes up. We're going to say he wakes up 7 a.m. on the dock. Okay. Just for, for the shits, right? Yeah, he yells excitedly about Christmas for a while, looks out his windows like, Hey, kid, go buy me this turkey. So, Scrooge tells him if he can come back from the store um, in about, like, five minutes, he'll give him an extra sovereign. Um, so, we'll say that the kid nails it because it's just down the street. Gets to the poulterers. There isn't a line. He buys the turkey, and the shop's guy carries a 40-pound bird back to Scrooge in about, like, 10, 15-ish minutes. Okay, so we'll say 8 a.m. We'll, we'll say it's not 8 a.m. So, it's taken about an hour for this turkey thing to happen, right? Well, does 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 he get the does the kid get the extra sovereign? He does. So, the kid He's, came back in five minutes. But yeah. The turkey doesn't arrive... For, like, a little bit. We'll say. Because, yeah, um, you got to lug the whole thing. It's yeah, whole... yeah. And this is what I'm talking about earlier, where Scrooge doesn't... Scrooge doesn't take the turkey to the crash. He ranges for it. He just is like, go take it to the... So the these are professionals. Place. So they, they must be pretty efficient at moving turkeys from place to place. I, one would have... I mean, I think he just calls, like, a taxi and, like, gets a guy. But I don't... Well, what about, who's the guy that takes it? We'll I don't... He, we don't know. We never see that guy. We never meet that character. Who delivers it from the market yeah, we to never, house. Yeah, we never... We never... Does it describe how he did it? In a it's In a carriage. Because oh, so that's important, carriage. because okay. the carriage is important, because Dickens tells us, <laughs> page 15 of the Christmas Carol, um, that the Cratchits live in Camden Town, okay? And so, if we take Mr. Donovan, who is the guy who had the prize turkey in real life in 1843, um, Mr. Donovan worked on Oxford Street, which is about a 15-minute car trip through modern-day London, and Scrooge hires this horse-drawn cab from his house. Um, and he says that the poulterers is, like, one street over and around the corner. So we'll say that, like, if we're estimating how, like, how fast a carriage would have gone in 1843, you can figure out that Oxford Street to Camden would be about 30 minutes, um, which puts the turkey at the Cratchits by 9 o'clock a.m. 
God, so they, so the turkey Scrooge never obtain. He, Scrooge, Scrooge never, never obtains it. the turkey. Scrooge so, never touches the. Turkey. So do they take it directly from the market to the Cratchit's house? I think so. Okay. So I'm I'm going from Donovan Street. We're saying that Donovan Street is like I'm just surmising this fictional poulterer's. Okay. Is Mister Donovan's? Oh, gotcha, gotcha. From uh, from Aiken's real life. Book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Akins is the one. That no, from the newspaper. From the newspaper. From the yeah. newspaper. Right. From the right. newspaper. Okay. And so this woman, so she gets. Miss Cratchit gets the turkey, 9.30. It's a ten and a half hour fire time, right? Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Like ten Like ten hours? Yeah, well, so there's also, there's like a weird, game. there's a weird sidebar where every single recipe book from the period is like, also you have to make your turkey with chestnut stuffing. Like, there's no, like, all of the recipes are like built around the idea that like you would have put stuffing in your turkey, but like... Whether or not that's a thing that she does, like, that could hypothetically add at least, like, another half hour to 45 minutes to the cook time if she even had the ingredients, because it's Christmas and it's a bank holiday, so all the stores are closed. So if she had... So we're saying we're looking at a 10-hour fire time if she had all of her mise en place beforehand. Is that yeah. what you're saying? I, well, and that's the thing, because, like, if we allow... Because also keep in mind that this is 1843. This isn't, like, fucking Butterball, right? Right. The turkey would have had it. Oh, would yeah. have just been hanging in a window. Right. They would have so, like, turkey. you'd have to pluck the turkey and clean the turkey and dress the turkey. Um, so, like, oh. maybe, maybe in a perfect world, like Mrs. Cratchit is like an expert ass turkey plucker slash dresser slash butcher. Ten a.m. Maybe we'll say ten a.m. Okay. Right. Like, like liberal. Like, let's say she just nails nat twenties the whole thing. Ten a.m. Yeah, ten a.m. So. The turkey is in the fire by 10 a.m. Say she's quick about it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's 10 hours. That's 10 hours of cooking time. And that takes us to about, like, 8 p.m., which isn't entirely unreasonable. Um, And that's where we get into the next component. What time would the Cratchits have eaten dinner, Eric? And so I had to research the dining customs of 1840. Because... In 1840, something very interesting was happening social, like socially, and culturally. Well, can and, I guess? Can I guess? Yes. Is it oil lamps? Partly, you're partly right. Because they could stay up after it gets dark. Because they can light the inside of the. Well, house. so what happened was is that 1843 is like solidly in the middle of like kind of like the industrial revolution in right. London, and so what happens is that like <clears throat> dinner got pushed back because you had these wealthy merchants and tradesmen and factory owners who worked in London, but they lived outside of the city because we had trains and all, and we had like all of these different things. So all of a sudden commuting becomes a thing, uh, but it's 1843. So it's not like you can just hop in your car and go 80 right, on to, the highway. Right? right. Like, so you have to, so dinner got pushed back. Like culturally dinner went from being around like 6 PM to like 8 PM to accommodate all of these like wealthy people who were like coming out of the city. Right. And then the rest, of sort of the culture was like oh well we want to fashionably dine like the rich people and so everybody started eating dinner later um so that's a that's a component so she has the turkey in the oven at 10 let's say 10 hour cook time yeah however katie it is commonly understood yes now yes that when you cook a turkey yes you need to let it rest for as long as you actually had it in the oven for I've never heard that in my life. You've never heard that in your life? Apparently been doing turkey rock. Well, that's... I mean, so for one, you need to let it rest. One, because it's hot (laughs) as shit. Um, 
But that's also like, I don't know how early we knew that. Because basically, I'm going to get so much flack for this from the cooks listening to this. But like, protein, it's, 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 it's basically a bunch of different hydraulic cylinders. Actin and myosin things sliding right. in and out of each other. Right. And those slide in and tighten up and, and relax through various things. Um, and temperature changes is one of those. So if you cut into a, a turkey that's just out of the oven, it's still very, uh, and it's going to eject a lot of moisture. Um, it's going to mm-hmm. bleed, as, as it's called. It's not blood, but yeah. it's going to eject a lot of moisture. However, if you let it rest, it allows the harvest to relax such that when you cut into it, it doesn't Well, here's the problem, Eric. Eject moisture. Here's the, the next problem. What? You're assuming that, that they, they had they an do. oven. Well, that's another because thing, Because here's the thing, <laughs> okay. Eric. Where did she cook the turkey? Well, the- because the Cratchits were living in Camden Town. Right. Do you know what that means, Eric? What does that mean, Katie? So... Now we're going to talk about bread. Oh, Katie. Okay, we're going to talk about bread oh, for a little bit. Oh, shit. Are you ready? Yup. Okay. I, I've been ready for so many years. So, bread was like, I mean, bread has always been like sort of like a, a food staple in culture, but it was really important to Victorian life. And baking was like a hugely profitable industry at the time because we were moving away from people baking their own bread to like, you go to the bakers, right, to get the bread. Um, however,. However, so the population of London is increasing, like, exponentially. Like, it's London is blowing up and it's becoming this, like, global epicenter, right? But so the need for cheap and available housing exploded. And that meant a lot of sort of, like, I hesitate to use the word, but it was, like, projects. They were, like, the, the projects, right? Mm. Um, and these, like, converted houses where you had, instead of one family living in a house... You had six or seven or eight families all sort of crammed into these, like, very substandard, like, living condition places because there was just such a need to cram as many people as possible into the city to keep your workforce active and... and Proximal. Proximal, right? Um, So, in a history of Camden Town, which I also read for this, so there's this guy, David Hayes, wrote this book, um, and he wrote that by 1830... Camden Town had evolved into a crowded inner London suburb with very mixed character. Um, And originally Camden Town had been like middle class, right? It had been very like, just kind of, you know, the burps or whatever. Um, But most of the houses were three stories with a basement and a service area and then uh, attics that had servants quarters. Um, But by the end of the 19th century, so like into 1850 and beyond, um, most of the housing was really run down and Camden Town had become like a very poor area of um, London and people, multiple people were sharing these houses. Um, but these shared, because they were now multifamily homes and they were shared lodging, that meant that not every home had an oven. Because if you got the second story, there wasn't, there the kitchen was in the basement, right? Um, and that is where public bakehouses come in. Oh, Katie. Oh, Katie, we're getting... Okay, okay. Okay, to those of you who might not know, I bake a lot of bread and sourdough bread, and that's why I moved to San Francisco, and I've worked with wood-fired ovens every day for a very number of years, and I probably have wood ash somewhere on my body (laughs) as I say this. So I am super stoked and excited to talk about. So what would would happen was there were these ideas of these public bakehouses, Mm -hmm. And what it was, was was the bakery, the local bakery where they made bread, um, they would basically rent out oven space. And so you would take your meat or your pie or your cake or whatever, 
um, and you would give them a couple of bucks and they would throw it in the oven for you. And so then that way you didn't have to have an oven in your home. You could just sort of like a communal crock pot, right? Right. But the thing was, was like this became like a whole other industry in and of itself. And this is important in the story for a reason. Like I'm, I know it's a digression, but it's an important one because like on, on Sundays, especially, and on like holidays, like Christmas or whatever, when there would be food, people would bring their shit to the bakers to be cooked while they were in church. So it was like, you would, you would bring your meat to the baker. It would sit in the oven for two hours or whatever. And then you would take it back home. But that also means that we can prove quantifiably that the bakers would have been open on holidays because this was an extra way that they made money. Right. Yeah. And there's like, I did a whole other little alleyway of research about the like bake houses and that kind of thing, because it was just really interesting. Um, but Dickens talk about talks about this specifically, um, and he says um, in Christmas Carol he talks about like people um, carrying their dinners to the bake shops. So that's like a quote, right? So like this is happening in Christmas Carol. Um, and if we look back at Mrs. Beaton, the cookbook that I was talking about earlier, she says that the cook time for a large goose is about like one to one and a half to one and three quarters hour which is just enough time to get your goose to the bakers, go to church and back to pick it up and it would be done by then. So the size of the turkey and the goose is somewhat predicated on the social convention of everybody going to church at the same time. That's amazing. Right. Wow. So she would, let's say she brings this massive turkey to the bakehouse. Well, she can't because she hasn't rented out her space for this turkey. So she's going to have to cook it at home. Because... This is the next part. You would reserve those spaces ahead of time? Hypothetically, yes. Yeah, okay. But the other part of this this quandary is that we know that she's already paid for the goose to not be cooked at home. Because Dickens writes, the, the goose is being cooked somewhere else. They don't have an oven. Right, because like, she, she already has a goose. That was her She plan. already has a goose. She already, already had, had her goose. Christmas dinner. Totally. She's also mise en place some of she her is. Christmas dinner, which we're going to talk about earlier ah. or later. But... So we know that the goose isn't being cooked at home. She's not cooking, cooking this goose in her house because Dickens says um, the two smaller Cratchits come in uh, screaming that outside the bakers they had smelt the goose and known it for their own. So Mrs. Cratchit has, quant- like, we know canon that- canon she has outsourced cooking this goose, right? right. Um, and, then she's, and then he talks about it again. He says that Master Peter and the two young Cratchits go to fetch the goose. Mm-hmm. So, like, they've gotten their goose back from the bake shop, okay? Um and also, just in case you wanted to know, um, uh, Bob Cratchit makes 15 shillings a week at Scrooge's. We know this from the story. Um, and Miss Beaton tells us that you can pay, expect to pay about five shillings for a goose around Christmas time. So that means that we're looking about one third of Bob's salary for the Christmas goose wow. for the week. Wow. Just so you know, it's not, that's a, that's a pricey ass, that's a pricey Christmas goose. Yeah. And not to, if they were to reserve space again to cook the turkey somehow. Like, under the best of circumstances, mm-hmm. that would still cost them, presumably, quite a bit more. Because it's not just up in space, it's up in time. Yeah. So it would cost more than he makes in a week, presumably. Yeah. To even, la- like, last minute order reserve, you know, oven space or something yeah. like that. So it's financially, like, it's, out of it's the question. It's not viable, right? It's out of the question, yeah. So that, so, okay. But so then I was like, okay, well, how are they cooking, right? Like, how, like, does she have to outsource everything? Do they have anything? But they do, we do know from the story that they have to have a hearth, because... What's a hearth? 
like a, a like just a little fireplace. Right. Like just a little. little oh, is it the one with the thing that has a little slot on the top where you put a little kettle so it like boils the thing, like in. Oh, I know Red what you're Dead talking about. Like, no, like hearth is just like a general word for like fireplace. Like gotcha. there's lots of different kinds, but like we'll just say it's like a little. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Just it's whatever. Right. right. Um, but um, in the story, um, it says that Master Peter Cratchit is like the little kid is like excited about whatever he blows into the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. So she's making mashed potatoes for, so we know that mashed potatoes are on the menu um, and they have a saucepan and there's some place for that saucepan to go. So like feasibly there's some sort of like hearth stove hanging pot situation. Mm-hmm. Um, also now we're going to talk about Miss Scratch's mise en place. All right. Are you well, excited? I are am excited. Yes. Can you so, see it in my eyes? Can you see it in my eyes, listener? You're, they look very glassed over at this point. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. Um, okay. So Dickens writes and he says, Mrs. Cratchit had made the gravy ready beforehand in a little saucepan Hissing hot. So she means she's reheating her grapes. It's her mise. She's reading her mise. She made it already. Um, And Master Peter mashes the potatoes and then they make applesauce. um, Yeah, so all those things, you know, they require ovens. Yeah. Of various kinds. So they have some, they have an enclosed hot thing with which they can bake things. The question is, how big is that? Yeah. Because this turkey is. It'd be huge. I'm picturing, like, you know, like. Uh, like a, when you get an Amazon package and it's like really big, bigger than you thought, and you're like, whoa, where am I going? And you have this big box right? and you don't know whether or not to get rid of That's what I'm picturing. But yeah, and so what's, what, but then it gets even like, I mean, it just keeps getting more interesting the more dumb rabbit hole you go. Well, I also want to point out, so like, so in my area of expertise, like I've, I maintain a wood-fired oven mm-hmm. professionally. Right. Like, which I don't mean to say like, I but like I have a very lot of experience just thinking about the temperature of an, of an oven, how much wood it takes to maintain a temperature, what needs to be... So to maintain a... a for one... For one, a fire needs to be started in a wood-fired oven way before you intend to use it. Usually. Well, if, especially if you're baking a large protein like that. Right. Like, if you're just, like, throwing something in there to just, like, blast it with heat to get us, like, a some color on it, you sure, you can just start a big old fire, and that'll work just fine. Right. But if you need this oven to be at a reasonably constant temperature for long periods of time, you need to build a big fire to get, to basically pump a lot of heat into the walls of the oven mm-hmm. and give it a lot of, sort of... Um, inertia, you know, like yeah. make it so that it wants to be this temperature. Then once the fire dies, you move the co- those the coals that it creates, the red coals, to a strategic location, depending on what you're what you're doing. Um, and then you use the coals, which are a reasonably con- constant temperature. I mean, of course, they're slowly getting cooler, but they're pretty pretty constant. The heat of the oven, which is now like it's primed and ready to go. Then you use pieces of wood to just kind of very delicately like just pump it up just a little bit to make sure it kind of stays yeah. that way. So either way, my point is, is that there is like, think of the amount of time it takes this fire to burn into coals. So that amount of time before you even use the oven. And then you have to be paying attention to it for those 10 straight hours burning through wood. Yeah. So you would take like, like if you put your arms out, like, you know, like in a big hoop, like big basketball, like you're making a basketball hoop. Think about the amount of wood that you could hold, like firewood you could hold in there. It would take like, I don't know, easily five times, six times that much wood 
to build that initial fire and then to maintain it at a constant temperature for 10 yeah. straight hours, which is like a lot of wood. <laughs> that is not an insignificant. They would have had, had the fire going anyways, yeah. though, I imagine, because it's, it's yeah. winter and they would be keeping it going anyways. Yeah. But it's also like, but it, it's still not an oven, though. Like that, like we're talking about like a straight fireplace. Right. Like, because that's part of it. Uh-huh. Because, which I think actually like makes it, you're using more wood because you're talking about like, you're now talking about like, not like an, like a, you know, fancy brick pizza oven. Mm-hmm. You're talking about like literally like logs on a fire that you just have to right. maintain. And not to mention it's, it's when you're dealing with higher temperatures, sorry, now I'm talking about stuff that I actually okay. know about and I'm really excited. It's okay. It's okay. Um, what, when you're dealing with, with large, lots of things that have a lot of mass. Yeah. It's, you know, you think of like the oven is like heating the turkey, but like the turkey is cooling down the oven. Like, that's what's happening is, this, yeah. is you know, the, the entropy. Like, cold things are, it wants to reach the same temperature. Um, and so cooking a large, you're basically putting a giant fucking ice cube in the oven. And so you had to have to use more wood just because this thing is so massive. Yeah. It's going to suck up an insane amount of heat. So you would be just, you'd be like, you know, uh, yeah. like a, 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 what are they called? A steam engine. Yeah. You'd just be shoveling yeah. stuff in there to tr- try to keep the temperature up. Also, well, there were another, there were a number of different methods of baking. Um, these are, I, the, I know these were around in the 1700s and I don't know how much they persisted, but like if you wanted to bake bread and you didn't have like an oven that could really facilitate that because you need a high steam environment and all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, what you could do, I don't remember the name of the method, but basically you would get a, a Dutch oven a big thing, but put your dough in there and then put it on top of coals and then cover it in coals. And so it was sort of, you, it was sort of, at least in the 1700s, it was a valid method of like, oh, we don't have an oven that fits this, but yeah. we can create a large enclosed receptacle. Which is. So perhaps what they could do. Interesting that you mentioned that, Eric, because here's the thing. So remember I was talking about Mrs. Acton and Mrs. Beechin before, who were mm. like the, the cookbooks? So all of the cookbooks at the time are specifically set up to deal with that issue. Really? All of the cookbooks are like, a lot of them are like, you know, throw them in the oven or whatever. Uh But almost all of them talk about recipes with like dressings and trimmings and add-ons, but that are all things that we can cooked over like an open fire Uh with the understanding that not everybody has the space or the oven or whatever. And so this, this keeps coming up like over and over and over is like all of the ways of cooking. They present like a, here's what to do if you have an oven, but then like literally in my notes, I've got like, here's how to cook a Turkey hearth style where you Uh. just put it next to the fireplace and hope for the fucking best. Right. But, like, there's actual recipes that, like, advise you the best way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that's that's the whole thing. But the problem is, is that, like, now if we're talking about the Cratchit's turkey, all of these methodologies involve, like, action. Like, physical action. Like, you have to constantly baste the turkey. You have to right. constantly, like, turn the turkey on the spit or whatever. So, like... Mrs. Cratchit is still doomed to an existence of sitting in front of this fucking fire for 10 hours, maintaining the proper temperature like you were talking about, or whatever. It's just like... And they already had the goose. That's kind of the big thing. Like, because if they had no... If the the plot was that they had no Christmas dinner, they were totally fucked for Christmas. Mm -hmm. Like, then, sure, it's sort of an aloof gift for Scrooge to give them. Like, clearly he's so out of touch with how other people live that he could just assume like, sure, of course you can afford to, to, to cook this and whatnot. But like, it would still be like, okay, they didn't have a Christmas dinner and now they do. Sure. It's inconvenient. Sure. Like all this stuff, mm-hmm. but they didn't have one. And now they do. 
They already had one, and it was great. They had an awesome Christmas dinner, and now they're either going to waste this turkey or spend the rest of their day trying to fucking cook it. Well, it's funny you should say that, Eric, because then I got interested in the leftovers. And so I had to do some research on leftovers in Dickensian London. Because here's the thing. Okay, so like we we've got the we've got the main the main questions. My main thing has already like we're past that. What, like, what was your main question? My, just I mean your main to questions. reiterate because we got a little off. Yeah, let's let's path. let's review here. My my two questions that I wanted to know were how big would the prize turkey have been? Right. We answer answer 40 around forty pounds. Second question: How long would it take? a housewife living in Camden town in the projects to cook a 40 pound Turkey using the assets and technology at her disposal. And to the best I can figure out around 10 hours, 10 hours cook time, cook time, plus prep, plus plus prep. But then that made me want to know, like what would the timeline of Christmas Carol have been in order to facilitate the cooking of this Turkey? But then that left me with one last question. And that last question was, they already have a goose. They have mashed potatoes. They have applesauce. They've got dressing. And I think they've got a cake. So, like, what are they doing with this sudden influx of 40 extra pounds of turkey? Because that's a lot of, like, you, you can't eat 40 pounds of turkey in one day. Like, you, it is physically impossible. So what do you do with the leftovers? And then I had to look up the weather, Eric. Because they could have frozen it. If, if it was freezing, they could have Because if it was freezing, they could have, you know, it would it would be easier. If it was, was warm out, that completely changes. Oh, yeah. And so, Eric, I had to do research as to the weather conditions of Christmas Day, 1843. What were the weather, weather conditions, Katie? Well, Eric, I have some Christmas ruining news for you. What's that? Uh, Christmas Day, 1843, was unseasonably warm. And it was about fifty degrees that day. Oh no, okay. that's not turkey freezing temperature. Which that's for sure. I also want to want to want to just. These are the facts that live rent free in my brain, and so every single time there, like every version of Christmas Carol that has existed or ever will exist in the world, involves someone going, "It's snowing," and then they all sing like "Joy to the fucking world" or whatever. Well, Scrooge is redeemed. That shit didn't happen. It, it was, was hot. hot. It was it muggy. Was a, it was a hot ass <laughs> shitty day. <laughs> um, the sewer in the streets evaporated and wafting through the air. Yeah, and it was really foggy too. By the way, wow, like it was really foggy, and it was it was like damp. It was a damp, warm Christmas day. <laughs> Well, so they could also take the turkey, they could break down the turkey into its pieces. They could. And then braise it or whatever, and, yeah. or they could confit it. That would last a hell of a yeah. long time. Well, and, like, Mrs. Beaton, actually, she want like, she's got, like, pages and pages and pages on, like, how to how to deal with your leftover meat, which is really interesting. Cool. Because, like, so socially and culturally, that was a problem. It was, like, you would have leftovers, but, yeah. like, what do you do with it? Oh, yeah, so, like, cured meats were such a big deal back then. Yeah, and she actually talks about, like, curing it in the larder. The Plus, why salt was super fucking Yep, and, and, yeah. Yeah, curing, well, think about, so, lard, larder um, and any lapidious, any fat-based thing. Uh, it's extremely good for preserving stuff. Um, so, like, if you confit a meat, uh, you know, like in this case, like if you confit the turkey, basically what that means is you're cooking it submerged in oil at a very low temperature. Um, and because it's submerged in oil, which you can keep it submerged in that oil, the oil doesn't let any air or 
strange moisture, strange things come in. It's like perfect. It's like sealed in like encased in carbonite, you know, like this, yeah. this turkey. And so that's a very good way of it. And you can also do it in, if you have a bunch of fat lying around, you can do it in fat too. Um, so that would be one way of doing it. Yeah. It's just, and it's just really interesting. Cause like you look at like Mrs. Beaton and stuff and like the, the food safety, the food, like the food handling uh, is so different. Like, hold on. I want to find the, the good part. Uh, though it is not. Oh, where is it? Oh, here we go. Um, though it is advisable that annual food should be hung up in the open air till its fibers have lost some degree of their toughness. Yet, if it is kept till it loses its natural sweetness, its flavor has become deteriorated, and as a wholesome comestible, it has lost many of its qualities conducive to health. This is where it gets fucking awful. So she's like, hey, so you can keep your, your you can hang up your meat, uh, but it's gonna get like tough and start to rot at some point. So as soon, therefore, as the slightest trace of putrescence is detected, it has reached its highest degree of tenderness and should be dressed immediately. During the sultry summer months, it is difficult to procure meat that is not either tough or tainted. Um, <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on about like how to deal with like the fact that like most of the time part of your meat is going to be rotten and like how to like cut around those parts and like what parts of meat like rot faster than like it was like it's a completely different way of understanding food oh yeah i i, I think that's things like um fermentation and meat curing um or, or and pickling are fascinating to me because those are you know those are clever solutions to problems that's yeah. why those exist is that we have this stuff it's going to go bad. What are we going to do? Like, you know, uh, calves just produce a bunch of milk all of a sudden one day. You're like, oh my God, I have a bunch of, like way too much milk. So what do you do? Oh, well, if you do a bunch of cool stuff to it, you can split it into curd and whey and you can turn the curd into cheese and you can use the whey to cook other stuff and make it more flavorful and health healthful and all that. It also inoculates really well. So it can be used to ferment stuff. And curing meats, like these amazingly interesting processes, like it's, it's just like all this fucking meat's gonna go bad. We gotta do something, and then that's how they figured out. They, which is amazing. like they didn't know any in fermentation. Like what's amazing about fermentation to me is um, basically without realizing it. When we invented fermentation, when we discovered the process of fermentation, the idea is that if there is like water and sugars between uh, forty degrees and one hundred and forty degrees, it is going to grow bacteria. That's mm -hmm. just going to happen. Unless it is 100% sterilized, which, n no. <laughs> um, it is going to grow back to the bacteria that's on it. It's going to get, just, it's going to grow bacteria. So rather than try to stop bacteria from growing by keeping it out of those temperature limits. So, for example, putting something in the refrigerator drops it below 40 degrees. So bacteria still grows, but it grows much more slowly. Much, much more slowly. Um, or, you know, keeping it really hot, you know, like boiling it so it kills all the bacteria. Um, rather than trying to rid stop the process of that bacteria from growing, they were like, okay, bacteria is going to grow. Let's just make it bacteria that's safe to eat. I mean, they obviously didn't think that because they didn't know what bacteria was, <laughs> they, but that's what they unknowingly did. They were like, it's going to grow bacteria. So they created environments in which the bacteria that is grown is in fact healthy to eat and tasty. So it's like this fascinating, and they had no idea that that's what they were doing. But they're basically bacterial growth is inevitable at these temperatures. 
So let's just make it bacteria that's good to eat and safe to eat. And in fact, the SCOBY that they create, a symbiotic community of bacteria and yeasts, woo woo, um, <laughs> it's, if it's a really healthy, robust community, it'll kill any bacteria that is bad. It'll like invade in their space. I mean, not any bacteria, but like it, it has, it's like an army in there that's going to like keep their shit together. Over time, mold will start to grow, like over deep time. I mean, if you really nail your process, it'll last a very, very, very long time. I have ferments in the fridge, Katie, from like a year and a half ago, and they're uh, still edible. They're they're way too far. Like they're not. They wouldn't kill you if you ate them. They're just. I don't. I would they don't taste very good. Please don't eat those. I will not or... eat those. But anyways, I think that's fascinating. <laughs> but the it's but so these processes of like. You know, yeah, but they this were, is they were all designed. They, they were, were all designed around that idea that like some people don't have an oven or a, I mean, nobody had refrigeration. Right. Well, they had ice boxes. Richer yeah. people did. Yeah. But but like yeah, they couldn't just say like I want this much milk for today, so I'm going to go. It's like, well, no, I have cows. Like I'm the person who sells those people their milk. I just have cows. Right. I have more milk than I can eat or sell. What am I going to do? I just, it's just such a human cleverness. It's so awesome. So awesome. But yeah, that's basically it. That's the end. Cool. So a conclusion. To conclude. To conclude. If you've ever wondered about how big the prize turkey was in A Christmas Carol, it's 38 and a half pounds, according to the actual British newspapers of the day. Uh, Charles Dickens was not lying when he was like, the one as big as me, sir. Um... And I'm a big fucking nerd. Yes. That's yes. all we really That's learned, what we've learned today. So what I've learned, so takeaways, <laughs> this turkey was 38 and a half pounds. Approximately. According to the newspapers of the day. It would have taken 10 hours to cook. We know that Miss Crockett, Miss Crockett, Miss Cratchit. Cratchit did not have the oven space for it in her own home, nor did she have the ability to reserve oven space in a professional baker's because she already had for her goose... Mm-hmm. And it would be immensely hard for her. And the goose was already cooked. And the goose was already cooked. That's right? the other thing. Is it was done. It was they had they the dinner. had dinner. So, Ma, what I'm taking away from this, my 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 rating on this is nice Chester Scrooge. You need to learn your constituents better. You know, like they're not as constituent, but like it was a nice gesture. I appreciate it. That's nice. Be better. <laughs> like be better. Well, what's what's funny about it is like symbolically, Dickens was right. Because, like, at the time, when Dickens was writing, like, that kind of thing, like, that was a hugely symbolic gesture of, like, the Cratchits are, like, because Scrooge, like, tells them later, you know, like, oh, I'm going to increase your salary and I'm going to endeavor to help you and your struggling family or whatever. So, like, the turkey becomes, like, symbolic of this promise that, like, things are going to get better for them and, like... Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, they'll be able to cook their own turkey, both literally and metaphorically, like that kind of thing. And so it's interesting that, like, narratively, the turkey serves this purpose, but practically speaking, it doesn't make a lick of sense. It'd be like if, if, you know, Jeff Bezos goes up to, like, a struggling, like, a financially struggling family and says, like, hey, I'm sorry, I feel really bad. Here's uh, tickets to go skiing this summer. (laughs) Like, and he's like, that was nice of me. And they're like, I can't afford to take time off work to go skiing. I don't know how to ski because it's extremely expensive. Can I just have health care? Can somebody <laughs> please give me health care and make it so that I can have food to eat, please? Like, that's kind of how it scans to me. Yep. Yeah. And so, from all of us Christmas-ruining pieces of shit at Infinite Quest, 
Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. God bless us, everyone. God bless us, everyone. And every time it's ever snowed at the end of Christmas Carol, that was a goddamn dirty lie. That was a lie. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> sorry Thanks. about this episode. Sorry about this. I'm not sorry about this for one little I'm a little sorry. Second. I feel like everyone's going to be very confused about what just happened. No, they're going to be like, wow, Katie's amazing. She's so they're smart. Like, wow, Katie once spent Super 72 cool. hours researching the history of the turkey in a christmas carol yeah why did she do that is she okay because she's great and they're gonna be like no i don't think she's okay at all are you okay no <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, you made it to the end of the episode. Congratulations. Before we leave you this week, we want to send a special thank you to a couple of really incredible people who make Infinite Quest possible. First, we want to thank Anne. You know who you are, you know what you do for us, and we are so, so grateful for your presence and your support in our lives. Next, Eric and I want to extend our sincere gratitude and our heartfelt thanks to our moderators. Our Discord servers would not be what they are without all of you, and we are so grateful for your time and your energy and your talents and your support of us, not only as creators, but also as your friends. So thank you. Lastly, if you want to check out any of the sources or materials that I used in order to do this turkey-based research, we will have all of it available on infinitequestpodcast.com. Uh, so, you know, you can read the 38-page academic paper that I wrote on this. It's fine, that's a totally normal thing to do. Lastly, from all of us here at Infinite Quest, from me and from Eric and from our fearless and wonderful DM Chris and from our producer Brian, we want to wish you the merriest of Christmases, the happiest of holidays, the most blessed of seasons, whatever you might be celebrating. And we hope you know that we love you and we are so, so grateful for your support. So thank you. And as always, until next week, be kind to yourself, and Merry Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about.